Welcome to the West Block Podcast. I'm Mercedes Stevenson. We begin today with some of the top Canadian political stories of the year. Take a listen. Baseless and unacceptable. That is how the Indian government described the Prime Minister's bizarre theory. This has been uh, an excellent trip that has been an opportunity to uh, deepen people-to-people uh, -people ties between India and Canada. We're thinking about just taxing cars coming in from Canada. That's the mother load. Uh, we don't like their representative very much. Did she get, in return for all those concessions, an end to steel and aluminum tariffs? We were tough when it mattered. We ran on the belief that New Brunswick needs better service from their political leaders. We were elected on that. The election is over now. Let's start working together for the benefits of all Quebecers. Here it is, the People's Party of Canada. When Alberta's oil is sold in Canada, profit from it actually goes back to Canada. The one issue that Ontario and Saskatchewan are most closely aligned on is the fight against the Trudeau Liberal carbon tax. We are going to move forward, as we always have, in a very consistent way. I'm here with my global national colleagues to talk about the biggest political stories of the year. Joining us is Mike LeCouture, Abigail Beeman, and David Aiken. Abigail, let's start with you. Biggest story on the Hill for you this year. For me, it was the trip to India. And I, I know we're going all the way back to February, but I was on that trip as a reporter, and it was fascinating to watch it play out all of the missteps, all of the problems with that trip. So the big ones being the choice to wear Indian attire, which did not go well. I remember somebody in India saying, you know, we Indians don't wear Indian clothing <laughs> this often. Uh, and then watching it play out back home, which which was even worse. And, of course, the invitation of uh, Jazz Paul Atwal, the convicted attempted murderer, photograph. Uh, at an event on the trip and watching the way the inner circle handled that trip on the trip very poorly but bigger than that the reverberations and the consequences of that trip have we've seen it play out all through the year with the uh, Daniel Jean uh, testimony and uh, it just this this month we have a new report uh, about that trip so that trip was the first time that we saw a dent in Trudeau's numbers we saw some polling showing the conservatives uh, surpassing the uh, liberals in polling and it was the trip that stuck in terms of, of making an impression well and David why do you think that that trip stuck. What about it? Well, made there it also that wasn't watershed? much news. I mean, there wasn't much right. business element. And, and we've traveled with prime ministers, yeah. past and present, and there's often a cultural mix to these trips as well as a business component. This one was heavy on culture. This one was heavy and, on and culture. Not, un, unnecessary. And, and completely you, unnecessary. You saw the conservatives take it up in the House of Commons as Justin Trudeau's India vacation. And that, I think, also reverberated with Canadians, not only the costume, but what did you do? He brought his family over, and they were also suitably uh, decked out. So I think it just uh, it, it struck a completely the wrong tone, and uh, Trudeau wore it. And PMO knew it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we saw at the Parliamentary Press Gallery dinner where you had Trudeau get up there and make fun of it and say, India trip? What India trip? We didn't go to India this year. Yeah. Internally, they knew this well, was a I massive misstep. Tense is important. They knew by the time of the Parliamentary Press yeah, Gallery afterwards. dinner, and they know now, but on the trip... It, it just be, went from bad to worse, and and they couldn't they couldn't write that that ship. And, and certainly a trip they'd like to forget, but some things they'd like to remember. NAFTA, I know, was a big topic for you. Mike, yeah, and it was. And uh, I mean, what do we want to call it? NAFTA light, USMCA, CUMC, whatever it is. Yes, that was <laughs> finally something that Trudeau can look at and go. 
I got a deal done with Trump. Can you believe this? Right? Because nobody thought, I mean, no matter what the conservatives want to say, and they think that they could have gotten a better deal with him, they believe they could have. Trudeau uh, and the liberals understood that trying to deal with Donald Trump and what he wanted to do and what he was trying to do, and no, still to this day, uh, I've spoken to people who were in the room and they said they were taken aback because they would show up and look across the table and say, so we agree on this, but uh, we just saw a tweet from your boss saying you don't agree on this. And the people across the table from the American side would go, uh, we, we need to get back to this here. So the fact that they could get it done, I think, is going to be a huge feather in the cap for Trudeau. He's going to campaign on that. The problem is we still have the steel and aluminum tariffs hanging over. Everybody thought that they were going to get resolved with the re resolution of NAFTA. They haven't. It's a massive uh, dent on our economy right now. Trump loves them. He thinks that they're great, that they are a huge benefit to the Americans. How Trudeau will get those tariffs taken off is going to be the biggest hill he'll have to climb next year. Uh, and another question on it, David. Congress is still a big question yeah. mark here because it's a very different Congress coming in and they haven't signed off on it. It is. And we've already seen we, several existing members of the Congress on both sides of the aisle say they don't like the new NAFTA or the USMCA. Um, yeah, so that, that's going to be a big problem. I think on the steel and aluminum tariffs, though, I think Trudeau is betting, and the reason they didn't tie the two things together, they think they got a you know uh, easy case in court, and it is in a couple of different jurisdictions. They'll win there, and Trump won't succeed there. But NAFTA is all politics, and our side and Trump have to actually now politic to the new Congress. And, and speaking of the Congress issue, I mean, when you just saw um, earlier in December that terrible photo op, photo op in the Oval Office with Nancy Pelosi and, and, and uh, Chuck Schumer that just degenerated. The Democrats... I love that kind of transparency in <laughs> photo op. Yeah. Yeah. more photo ops yeah. like yeah. that. Too many boring photo ops. But I mean, the fact yeah. that the Democrats now want to make sure that they turn what Trump sees as a win into a loss... USMCA, NAFTA Lite, NAFTA 2.0 might be where they want to do it. Well, Abigail, if Congress starts to become difficult on that, is that a political issue for the liberals here at home, or can people differentiate? I think people can differentiate uh, because the Liberals have been so consistent in their messaging about what a, a good deal uh, this is. I think for me, the reason that NAFTA is one of the most important and biggest stories of the year partially just the fact that it took so long to roll out. I, I spoke to lots of people who don't normally follow politics so closely who were paying attention and saying, hey, what does this actually mean? We have free trade with the mm -hmm. United States, right? It really made uh, a lot of people pay more attention, want to know the details. It was and it's a think, big surprise for a lot of Canadians that America might not be a friend. And when people started to realize this actually might break and fall apart and hey what does that mean for us now in our average you know in, in daily life i think that's why that story stood out we've never had to worry about the americans right it's never been or not as it, much yeah. yeah it's always been okay you know what sometimes we don't get along with them that's fine Trump has changed the game completely. Now nobody knows where the U.S. stands. Forget on a yearly basis, on a monthly basis, on a daily basis. Well, and, and speaking of game changers, uh, for Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, a pretty big game changer with some of the provinces, David, which I know relates to your well, top yeah. story of the year. So I want to start with New Brunswick 10 years ago, if you don't mind. I'll get into that this way. 10 years ago in New Brunswick. David Aiken's history is always good. Yes, and, and I love numbers. I'm a numbers guy. 10 years ago, 95% of New Brunswickers in an election voted liberal or conservative. Conservative. This fall, barely 70% did. The other, a couple of new parties, Greens, People's uh, sort of Alliance Party. Um, let's go next door to Quebec. 
There's a brand new party. The CAQ is in charge there. The Liberal Party had their worst showing ever. And the Parti Québécois, they're not even an official party anymore. Let's keep going west to Ontario. The Liberal Party of Ontario, one of the strongest machines in Western democratic history, it's no longer an official party. Voters, right, all three provinces said, I'm done with the status quo, I want something new. Let's look ahead to next spring in Alberta. Four years ago, Albertans said, to heck with the status quo, throw out the PCs, and chose the NDP for the first time. And it looks like the NDP may be on their way out with another brand new party, Jason Kenney's United Conservatives. This volatile electorate, an electorate that's ready to say, I want to try something completely different. We have seen some polling that suggests the Greens are on the rise. That is a net bad for Justin Trudeau's Liberals in the year ahead. We've seen little Maxime Bernier's new party. That may be a net bad for the Andrew Shears Conservatives. It's, it's up for grabs in this year. Voters are ready to move. Abigail, where do you think that populism is? Is it populism, I should say, is driving it? Where's the factor coming that's changing the way people vote? I think it goes back to what David says in terms of people who are ready to try something new. And, and in terms of populism, it, it, it's people who are just looking for those other alternatives. Maybe we don't quite yet know exactly how far that will go or, or what is the meat of those other alternatives. But it's people paying more attention to to a new alternative. Mike, we have a few seconds left. Your thoughts? You've been watching the provinces for a long time. Yeah. How significant of a shift are we seeing? I think the fact that now Justin Trudeau is sitting around the table where he doesn't have a lot of receptive ears anymore is going to be an issue for him. Uh, the fact that when he first dreamed up of, I'm going to hold these meetings again with the provinces and territories, um, and, you know, it'll be sunny ways and we're going to have a great time. Well, I think he's really seen now why Stephen Harper never did it before, because <laughs> it is difficult, it is hard to get consensus around this table, and I think in 2019, that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Will he try and play himself off of Premier Doug Ford, or is he going to try and go around campaigning saying, look, I'm the anti, uh, I'm the antidote to every one of your premiers, or does he have, you know, a receptive audience there? A bit of a reality check for sure. Thank you to all of our reporters for joining us with their Thank top you. stories of the year. As we wrap up 2018, it's always a good time to take stock of where the parties stand, what issues matter to Canadians, and what politicians will have to do to avoid political pitfalls and woo voters in the coming election year. With the answers to those questions, joining me now from Toronto is Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, Daryl, you have your finger on the pulse of voters, and politicians are always paying close attention to your polls. Take us through how each of the three federal parties, or at least three biggest federal parties, are doing. Well, right now, it's uh, the Liberal Party's election to lose. Uh, when you take a look at where they are in our polling, they're about five points ahead. But the key point, Mercedes, is not that they're just five points ahead. They've got a pretty good lead in all the places that really count in terms of winning large numbers of seats. So British Columbia, uh, in, uh, in Ontario, and in, um, and in the province of Quebec. So they're actually... A little, doing a little better than maybe the overall poll numbers suggest. When you look at the Conservative Party, uh, they're way overperforming in uh, the province of Alberta, which distorts how well they are doing in the national numbers. So they do well, in, really well in Alberta. They do also pretty well in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. But they are only competitive with the Liberal Party in the 905 uh, uh, east, of, uh, east of the prairies. So when we're uh, looking at where the Conservatives are, they've actually got quite a long way to go in order to to really challenge the government. And then finally, the NDP has been in a steady slide. They're down at 18 right now since uh, about the summertime. So they have to find a way to get back into the race. Daryl, what about Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada? Is he getting any traction? 
Not so far in our polling. I mean, we're not specifically asking about the party, but we don't see the category that we usually lump that into other uh, rising up in, in any great degree at the moment. When it comes to issues, what are the topics that Canadians are prioritizing and that they're going to be looking for politicians to present uh, positions and solutions on in this election year? Well, the number one issue is always health care, and the, and the Liberal Party does have a pretty good lead on that, but anybody who's been around politics for a long time knows that uh, you don't really win elections based on health care, you tend to lose them. So I don't expect that it's going to be a big uh, debate during the course of uh, the next year and the, and the next election. So that really brings us into economic issues, and that's where it becomes quite interesting. The Conservatives have a pretty good uh, lead, about eight points, over the Liberal Party in terms of economic management, but on the key issue of taxes, which is now number two, uh, to uh, health care in terms of people's overall concerns, uh, the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party are pretty well tied. That's an issue in which the Conservative Party traditionally has done a lot better. So if they're going to get competitive, they're going to have to establish some distance. When you take a look at where the Liberal Party has really been focusing its attention on things like environment, for example, climate change, anything that has to do with a, a, a broader definition of identity politics, they tend to wear, uh, rank further down the list. So as we go through the, uh, the uh, 2019 and work our way towards October in the election, I expect where you're going to see a lot of the, uh, the, the heat and light, a lot of the friction in the election campaign will be around those issues of economic management and taxation. Daryl, what do you think each party has to watch out for and what do they have to achieve if they want to win in 2019? Well, the Liberal Party really has to find a way to get itself focused and establish a gap on the issues that people are most concerned about that they're really in charge of. So for example, getting back more into a discussion about the economy and the future of the economy, particularly when we're facing some, some headwinds going into 2019, I think they would be well served by doing that. The Conservative Party uh, really does have a little bit traditionally an advantage on economic issues. So what they have to do is they have to really position themselves well on the economy. The hardest uh, uh, agenda, I would say, is for the NDP. When the Liberals have moved so far to the left to really occupy the space that the NDP traditionally occupies in terms of Canadians' political thinking, there's not a lot of uh, space left for them. So they're going to have to find a way to get back into this. Daryl Brooker, great analysis. Thanks so much. Thank you. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen and women sacrifice to keep this country safe. Right now, there are over 2,000 of them deployed far from home during this holiday season. Canada's top general, the chief of the defense staff, General Jonathan Vance, sat down with me for a year-end interview on Canadian Forces operations. General Vance, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. You see all of these reports, reports that normal Canadians don't get to see, reports about the threats that we face. What keeps you up at night? Well, what certainly keeps me busy um, are any of the reports pertaining to uh, where we're operating in the world, where there may be a threat to our troops uh, or a threat to the success of our missions. Uh, and that can range from uh, reports of uh, individuals or groups of individuals armed or otherwise that would try to uh, harm our people, all the way through to um, those kind of reports that would uh, have an impact on the success of our missions. What do you think the biggest threat to Canada is? There are very few large military threats to Canada. Uh, there are certainly threats that are evolving right now that can reach Canada, be they uh, missiles or threats against our cyber security, uh, threats to our oceans uh, and to our shores. We face a, a significant threat uh, almost every year now 
uh, with um, natural disasters, forest fires and floods and so on that affect Canadians. So in our role to defend Canada, protect Canadians, uh, that's been significant. How, how much strain does that put on the forces? Because you have limited personnel, limited equipment, limited budgets, and now you're dealing with thousands of people deployed at home and abroad to deal with natural disasters as well as with man-made threats. Generally speaking, uh, in the, over the last few years, uh, we haven't been you know, stretched to the point of not being able to do the missions that we've been asked to do. One of the things that happens, of course, is as I provide options to the government uh, for overseas missions, missions away from Canada, I don't provide options that we can't do. I don't provide options. So that, it limits uh, your choices. So it, it, well, like anything, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't, you know, give options that were feasible. And so, yeah, we have to stick. Every every military does. You've got a certain size, and you have to be able to uh, live within it. Uh, thus far, I haven't felt any restrictions based on what the government has asked us to do. Uh, versus what it is that we're uh, able to do. Will you feel those restrictions going forward if there is not an injection of people or funding? Absolutely. Uh, so that's why the defense policy has a significant injection of people and funding. Uh, we're going to grow by 3,500 uh, people in regular force. Uh, we're going to grow into the reserve uh, to 30,000. To change to operations. Looking overseas, you have a tremendous number of troops on NATO operations. Uh, I think a lot of Canadians aren't necessarily aware of, of how many are there. How concerned are you about the situation between Russia and Ukraine, which seems to be escalating, when there are so many Canadian troops that are in that region and could find themselves right at the front of where that conflict's taking place? Uh, so we have lots of troops involved in NATO operations. We've got the Enhanced Force Protection or uh, Enhanced uh, Forward Presence Battle Group in Latvia. We've got ships and aircraft. Uh, on duty ships consistently uh, and aircraft episodically uh, on duty for NATO. And then in Ukraine, uh, about 250 people uh, who are training the Ukrainian uh, forces uh, and doing a great job at that. Fantastic work. Um, the escalation that occurred uh, was brief and did not affect our troops. That said, uh, there's no question about it that we're in Ukraine because of what Russia has done. And as Russia continues to uh, be provocative, uh, be aggressive. It does, uh, and I understand it, raise the stakes somewhat. It hasn't affected this mission, uh, or Operation Unifier, at this juncture. Uh, but it doesn't point to uh, the, the peaceful and ultimate resolution of Ukraine that we'd like to see. Mali is another place where there's a significant Canadian forces presence. You're about halfway through that mission now. How do you know if you're making a difference? Well, um, first and foremost, we've provided an outstanding capability in terms of the aeromedical and uh, aviation logistics capability to that mission. On any given day, we know we've done a good job when each task, uh, day by day, gets done and gets done expertly. So we can measure our success in terms of our little part of the mission by the activity, the output, and, and the success of any given mission. Uh, to measure it in the context of the wider UN mission in Mali, well, we know that uh, those forces that operate out of Gao uh, must have aeromedical evacuation support, so they're able to function. So it's sort of binary. We either, it's either there and it's working, and therefore they have the confidence to deploy outside uh, and engage the population, or they don't, and they are. You're an infantry guy who likes boots on the ground. When you look at five aeromedical evacuations, do you think that makes a difference for the people on the ground in Mali? Well, it certainly made a big difference for the, uh, the people that we evacuated in those five missions. Um, but for the broader population? Well, we're, we're there to, the, the aeromedical evacuation is to support the, uh, the peacekeepers that are there. Uh, we'll support others as well, you know, depending on the call. 
yes, I think it, it does. How many people do we have there and why are we in Iraq? Well, right now uh, we have authorities up to 850 people to do with Operation Impact and on any, any given day that, that that number fluctuates. I'd say uh, today we're about 700. Um, we're there, uh, we were there, the first part of why we were there was to help eliminate the, the threat of Daesh, to uh, destroy uh, Daesh's ability to continue to, uh, to function. Now I would say uh, we're uh, part uh, or a partner in the stabilization phase, where uh, there are there continue to be uh, dash elements that either want to reemerge or have existed from before, and we're helping uh, identify where those are and help the Iraqis deal with it. And we're going to do the train or the training, uh, professional training of Iraqi security forces in a couple of different locations. Uh, so it's a holistic approach that defies uh, easy definition of win-loss. It's it's, we're going to have to work for this over time. You were in Afghanistan. The West pulled out of Afghanistan. It's in chaos again. There's tremendous violence. Are you worried the same thing will happen with Iraq? Well, not right now because uh, I think we continue to uh, stick to it, uh, particularly with the emergence of the new NATO mission. Uh, the coalition uh, and the NATO mission will be complementary to one another. General Vance, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, Mercedes, pleasure. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again. <laughs>